Hello and welcome to part four of Kalibunga, Tech Drugs and Capitalist Soul. So you'll know by now, as you're one of our dear subscribers, and thank you very much, by the way. Hope you're liking our bonus content. Do let us know. Always happy to get thoughts and feedback and so on. So as I was saying, this is Alphabunga Bunga's multi-part series on the Californian ideology. George Hoare and myself, Alex Hochuli, were in California in May 2019, thanks to the School of Humanities at the University of California, Irvine, to record sessions with the States of Wellness Research Group, who are critiquing the ideology of wellness today. So thank you to them and to Catherine Liu for sponsoring our trip. Parts 1 and 2, as you'll know, focused on questions of mental health, wellness, and drugs in contemporary capitalism. Part 3 looked more at the Californian reality and its relation to the California ideology, so we were talking about the built environment and geographic and social mobility. Now we're going to zoom out a little bit. While in California, we sat down with Tyrus Miller to talk about the Frankfurt School, the humanities, and romantic anti-capitalism. Tyrus Miller is the Dean of the School of Humanities at the University of California, Irvine, an expert in critical theory, the Frankfurt School, and Georgi Lukács, the Hungarian Marxist philosopher. So why is all this relevant to the Californian ideology? Well, as you'll see, much of this pertains to one's vision of modernity. You can imagine two competing strands over the past 200 years, rationalism versus romanticism. In a way, the 60s California hippies represented romanticism in a way, an attempt to re-enchant a disillusioned world. But as that spirit became incorporated into market dynamics, it became rationalized. The stuff we talked about in parts 1 and 2 of Kalibunga testify to this. So to start off, here's George, Kathleen Liu, and myself, Alex Hochuli, talking to Tyrus Miller in Irvine, California. So I originally got introduced to Lou Kutch when I was an undergraduate at Johns Hopkins in the 1980s, and I was reading Marxist theory, and he's a crucial figure in the history of Marxism, um, especially for the book um, History and Class Consciousness in the early 1920s. It influenced a whole group of people from um, the Frankfurt School thinkers like Adorno and Benu Walter Benjamin, Herbert Marcuse, starting in the 1930s or late late 20s mm -hmm. and then also had a big resurgence of interest in that early work um, in the 1960s and 70s with the new left mm. so that's really was my starting point and it's interesting as a starting point because i think a lot of the um, english language and more generally western reception of lukacs has been focused on actually what was a pretty exceptional work in his very, very long corpus of work and political activity. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had over 50 years as a mature theorist um, mm -hmm. writing, even as a Marxist, and he also had a, a, a pre-Marxist career as a, as a literary critic, mm -hmm. as a philosopher. And I started to dig further into this work, and that meant also digging into the history of the 1930s and the exile in the Soviet Union and Stalinism and the return from exile to Eastern Europe in, uh, after, after World War II. And there's a really interesting and really diverse body of work that Lukács produces all the way up to the end of his life mm -hmm. um, in 1971, <laughs> uh, and where he was actually working on a book that he didn't complete and didn't um, publish, 
Um, he was dying of cancer at that point, mm. but on uh, the question of democratization in socialist countries, and it was in his response to the uh, Prague Spring uprising. Mm. So there's a, a remarkable body of work that in some ways kind of puts history and class consciousness in perspective with a whole number of other interventions that he's making into really the major political events of our century from mm. you know the stalinist show trials of the 1930s to yeah. the defeat of fascism you know in the 1940s to you know the 1956 uprising the soviet invasion mm. of of uh, czechoslovakia in the 60s because he, he lived through all of them he had another 50 years after history and class consciousness uh, still to go so what 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 ideas of his do you, uh, do you find particularly useful in in your work so i think what one thing that does um uh, connect the early work but also um, takes on a different inflection in the later work is a very strong emphasis that he puts on activity uh, public activity and collective activity but as a as a framework for um, for thinking and also for cultural and literary uh, creation mm -hmm. so what I mean by that is he suggests that the active perspective, and he's, he's drawing from very classical sources, Aristotle, the idea of sort of the active life, mm -hmm. public life mm -hmm. in the polis, as being a precondition for a certain kind of thinking that he believes um, also then allows uh, a kind of translation into uh, progressive thought and to engagement with the democratic and you know and, and socialist political movements of the of the period. So what's interesting for me is the idea of this conditioning of thought and also of, of, of cultural production of, of literary perspective um, by the kinds of, uh, of public engagement. Mm -hmm. And what I saw in the later work, um, and this is in particular when he returns from uh, the Soviet Union, uh, where he's been all of the war. Mm. He returns to Hungary in 1945. The Red Army is occupying Hungary, but, they, but there hasn't yet been imposed what would happen around 1949, which is this, you know, sort of full-scale satellite Soviet mm. bloc dictatorship. And he's thinking very seriously about what is it that we need in order not to regress back into fascism, to move forward with a kind of democratization? And what forms will this democracy take that's different from mm -hmm. the parliamentary democracies of the, of the West? And so there is this term of people's democracy, mm -hmm. and uh, that has come to be almost a kind of, uh, you know, word for little Stalinisms in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. Um, but at the time, it had a kind of Actuality, it was a real problem to think through. And Lukács was, um, had returned from the Soviet Union and he was suddenly the most famous public intellectual mm. on the left in, in Hungary. And he was being asked for all kinds of occasions, you know, to, to speak and to pronounce about the refounding of the literary society. Mm. You know, what should, uh, what should be the repertoire of, um, you know, workers' theaters, of all kinds of these mm. sorts of very practical questions. And he's thinking through what sort of culture will cultivate the habits of mind mm. and the connection to public engagement that, uh, that we need for a post-fascist mm. democracy in transition, maybe over the long term to socialism, but not yet, you know, kind of imposing a 
Soviet-style socialist uh, culture and, and political system. So you, you mentioned his, um, his return to Hungary, and you, <clears throat> you were talking just before we started that you've, uh, you, you go there regularly. What's, what's, um, what's Lukács' reputation at the moment, do you think, in, in Hungary, maybe more widely? Because I don't think he's the most well-known um, Marxist thinker. I don't, I don't, I don't really fully understand <clears throat> why, he's, why his uh, reputation has, seems to have, have, have suffered or fallen away um, in, the, in the past sort of maybe 50 years. So um, right now he's he is kind of um, almost state proscribed, but in the sort of soft repression way that the that the Orban regime works. Um, there is a there are legal reasons why they can't simply disappear the archive, which is in the apartment that he formerly occupied. There was a sort of you know con- contract with the state mm-hmm. that. This collection would go to the um, to the Hungarian Academy, but it had to stay in place. So they they took the measure of basically um, removing all the librarians that were attached to the uh, Lukács archive, which meant effectively that no one can visit it. Mm. It's not closed. It's not it's not um, dissolved, but it's but it's a, it's effectively. Um, but I started going there in. Um, 2001. I was a I was a education abroad program director in in Budapest, and one of our faculty took me there for the for the first time, and um, he was saying, well, you know, Lukács. I, I used to read him a lot, but I've never been to the archives, so I'll come with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was a kind of sad little play. I mean, you're actually in his apartment, mm-hmm. and you're surrounded by his library up on the shelves, which is just. Um, one set after another of classic uh, literary works in the original language, you know, complete edition of Balzac, complete edition wow. of Tolstoy, complete edition of Goethe and Schiller, and so forth. Wow. And you're sitting at his desk, you know, reading the materials that, that you're requesting, but there was virtually nobody there. Mm. And um, I, you know, with a certain reverence, you know, was saying, well, could I make photocopies? And they said, you could copy everything that you want, but you'd have to bring your own ream of paper. And you went in the <laughs> in the kitchen where the Xerox machine was and made your made your wow. photocopies. So it was um, there was already a kind of you know sign of uh, on the one hand everybody knew who Lukács was and there were mm. a couple of statues which have since been removed from oh the city of Budapest. But um, he was a, a neglected figure then. If anything, you know the government's crackdown on him and probably more importantly on some of his still surviving followers like Agnes Heller Mm. um, where they tried to take certain kinds of legal actions um, against her probably to some extent has re-raised the profile of Lukács um, certainly has created a bit of international outcry and um, to some extent also has revived some of the interest of the contemporary art world for this con, you know, contradictory and complicated figure who certainly wouldn't have been a fan of contemporary art, uh, but nevertheless is seen as you know a really interesting figure to come to grips with. Just um, maybe a, a, a final question on his. So I, I don't know if this is actually true or not, but I've I've heard a story that he um, he planned at one point to write an aesthetics of, of film, 
and he's but he wasn't a film fan at all. And but he's, he he said, oh, I've seen I've seen one film. I've one film. <laughs> a bit like a bit like Aristotle apparently, who, who didn't like who didn't like theatre. But um, yeah, I guess is one. Have you heard this same uh, the same story? And second, uh, maybe more more generally, what you know. If uh, what should what should we read from, from Lukács? What should we what should we go and think through with uh, with Lukács? Because you've got to narrow it down because right. he's got like right. twenty odd books, and some of them are just yeah long and difficult. Yeah, and especially in terms of thinking politically today, I guess that would be the question, especially yeah. for the listeners of our podcast. Yeah. So um, on the question of the film aesthetics, he actually did write one of the really early film essays on an aesthetic of film. So it's an actual uh. text uh, from about 1911. Mm-hmm. And his, he was very involved in drama. And the primary concern is to set film apart from drama, but in a way that's very perceptive in which you know, he wants to discern what are the characteristics of the film and how to define those in ways that then allows him also to get at what's distinctive about, you know, the question of the presence of the body and the flow of time and drama versus that in film. So he did actually engage in a, in a I don't know how many films he saw, but he did engage enough to really actually be able to make some pretty perceptive remarks. And then he wrote a very long, um, I mean, it's a 1600 uh um, page aesthetics at the towards the end of his life in the 1960s. One of my former graduate students uh, has actually translated that, and the first volume should be published in the next year or two. Um, but he also returned to the question of film in in that because that's all about the system of the arts mm-hmm. and the film as you know kind of one of the branches of the system of the arts. So what what should you read of Lukács? Well, definitely um, history and class consciousness. There's no getting around that, even though I do argue that it's somewhat... Atypical. Yeah, atypical. Also, the theory of the novel is, you know, it's really a classic uh, book. But I think the other two things that I really think about a lot with Lukács is the, um, the book that's called The Meaning of Contemporary Realism. It's kind of notorious because it's, you know, it sort of sets... Uh, Thomas Mann against Franz Kafka and Kafka, while he, you know, sort of says, yes, of course, Kafka was a literary genius, but here's all the reasons why Kafka is bad or his worldview is is bad. And most people don't really go beyond that. But that is a book, coming back to the question of activism, where Lukács is, first of all, it's in the thaw right before the 1956 revolution. It's after the death of Stalin. It's after Khrushchev's uh, speech. And Lukács is again thinking about, okay, in this post-Stalinist era of socialism, you know, what, what should politics and what should culture look like? And his biggest concern is the question of war and peace, and particularly nuclear war. <clears throat> so he de-emphasizes really the class-on-class class struggle, and he asks the question, you know, in this uh, framework of culture, what, in what ways can we cultivate an activism that will mm. allow us to not, um, you know, not move towards a nuclear war, and it's in the context of the anti-nuclear war, the anti-nuclear mm. movement, and so forth that was part of that uh, politics of the 1950s and the nuclear disarmament campaigns and so forth that you know continued really all the way into my memory and into the 1980s. Mm. Um, so there is a 
Go ahead. Go no, ahead. No, 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 no. There go is ahead, a connection please. there with, uh, you know, some of what I at least consider to be almost the genealogy of, I mean, it, for, for people that, uh, you know, have a kind of a longer memory, this was the genealogy of some of the political movements that we ourselves participated in um, as young people and that either have not, you know, borne fruit or, or else, you know, continue in various sorts of forms mm. on, on the left. Because it makes, it makes me think Perry Anderson's <coughs> classification, I guess, of the whole of Western Marxism as, as coming out of defeat. Um, I guess, are we in a somewhat similar position at the moment? We're in a, we're in a the left has been defeated. Um, and maybe this particularly applies to history and class consciousness, but I guess this is, you know, drawing out Alex's question a bit as well. What, um, what political lessons can we, can we learn? I mean, is there anything that we can take from, from particularly Lukács' earlier work that's, that's applicable to what we need to do now to, to kind of, I guess, build a common leftist project? So, uh, you know, I don't know that I would solely say defeat, although it definitely is an element of this, but I think mm -hmm. Lukács is in many ways a thinker of the slowness of the path to socialism. He had almost messianic expectations, um, you know, in the, in the wake of the Russian Revolution, and it, which is embodied theoretically in history and class consciousness. Mm -hmm. And much of the rest of his work is a coming to terms with how do you, how do you hold on to the, 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 the hope and, and at least the faith, because hope might be a little too strong, um, mm -hmm. But the but the faith that there is a you know there is a socialism that is coming and what are the steps that need to be taken but also you know how do you understand the patience that is involved in suffering various sorts of defeats but also continuing to move forward mm -hmm. and there's a really interesting moment in one of his essays on Tolstoy which he sees you know also in some ways as a thinker of kind of the prematurity of the Russian Revolution and some mm. of the kinds of ways in which Tolstoy is is figuring. But he has this, uh, he, he quotes this famous quote from Marx of um, hic rodis, hic salta, you know, here's Rhodes, yeah. um, you know, here leap or dance. And uh, the idea up for Marx was, you know, this is the place where you need to engage in the socialist struggles of the, mm. of the present. Mm -hmm. And Lukács says something like, today we have to admit that Rhodes is a long way off. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think his thought is very much tied up with, um, you know, the kinds of hopes that he had for an immediate world revolution that would transform everything um, and create a new man um, mm -hmm. almost on the spot, you know, by 1924. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and then, you know, living a very long life, committed to socialism, but understanding that the that the time frame was being extended and pushed out how do you how do you begin to come to terms mm -hmm. with that without losing mm -hmm. um the faith and the commitment that, yeah. that he had yeah challenge today so and you mentioned, I think, the word conserving. <laughs> and I think maybe this would be a good uh, segue to talk about the humanities and how do you conserve the humanities, how do you extend the humanities. How do you, you break them and start it over? Well, perhaps as well. Maybe yeah. that's, that's something to ponder. 
Um, you mentioned Budapest. I mean, obviously, there's the example there, which we've discussed on previous episodes about Hungary, actually, about the clampdown on academic freedom at the Central Euro- European University. Where I live in Brazil, they are making very serious cuts to social sciences and humanities funding because it's, and this seems like a Cold War throwback, but they're seen as homes of leftism. And so, you know, what's the point? Why not? People should go study something that's productive, like engineering. Uh, or medicine instead of the humanities, which is useless. Mm. Uh, and then it's under attack in maybe less politi- less politically direct forms in the United States or in Great Britain, where you know the humanities are just simply devalued uh, in and much more instrumental knowledge is, is favored. So I guess my, just as a starter, what how how do you defend the humanities today, and and not just defend it in kind of guarantee funding but how do you intellect how to mount an intellectual defense of mm-hmm. the value of the humanities I, I think of you know I think of the humanities as the source of a number of um, traditions of thought that have been important in our um, in our criticizing the exact the existing situation and also that help us to imagine alternatives to things that we have criticized um, in the present and in our, in our past. So I think it would be very unfortunate to jettison that in the name of whatever it might be, technology or um, you know market values and so forth. I think in a deeper sense, we as human beings have an engagement with the question of the meaning of what we do. And in essence, the humanities are the sciences of that meaningful dimension and the 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 key dimensions of of meaning include our investigation of our histories um, our capacities for imagination um, that go beyond the uh, the empirical positivistic aspects of you know present facts so the ability to um, project ourselves imaginatively into mm-hmm. alternative worlds and into the worlds of others than our um, immediate community. So um, I thought I would push you there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, go ahead. Because you, you, you were, that was a very eloquent defense of the humanities, but is there the possibility that in the present state of um, sort of um, a war of the 1% against the rest, if we accept that, and some leftists do, some don't, but um, if you think about the sort of destabilizing forces of capitalism and market values, and then this you know, deep retrenchment into preserving, trying to preserve the status quo, how do, you, how do you see the humanities there as a site of just to be protected, or as a site that can actually marshal forces of critique against the status quo? Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's um, there's a kind of a couple things I want to say about that. I mean, I I very much value the element of the humanities that are involved in in critique, and I think that there are important resources there. So just to actually give you an example, as I was thinking about the question of um, Lukács and California, which is a somewhat unlikely uh, <laughs> conjunction. Um, you know, I really was beginning to think about this uh, this concept of reification that Lukács raises. And what's important about the concept of reification is it's a very innovative way of thinking beyond what Lukács inherited as the concept of ideology. 
ideology being simply false consciousness or even even more crudely bad ideas that are perhaps you know socially generated but nevertheless it's a question of the ideas that you have in your head that are erroneous are are, are distorted are bad mm -hmm. and Lukács was trying to get at the way in which thought was almost embedded into situations and was maybe experienced spontaneously and intuitively um, in ways that that distortion was already built in. So even in some cases, um, you might be able to have to know the critique, to be able to consciously critique these, but nevertheless still be engaging in that systematically distorted thought insofar as you acted. Um, if you think about the way in which we, so I, I remember one time using the term mythic thinking and um, one of my friends, you know, in a sort of fit of pique said, mythic thinking, like you mean the way that you interact with your car, you know, <laughs> the way that you take vitamins, you know, these various sorts of things where these are spontaneous acts where I can't defend the rationality of them, mm. but I'm in some sense kind of embedded in that almost mythic interaction just by the way that we 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 mm. act with our everyday commodities and with our bodies and so forth. This is relevant here. We're talking about the humanities and whether they can be sites of critique and imagination away from the overbearing rationalization of social life today. That is, the drive to monitor and measure and encase and instrumentalize social relations. One relevant concept here is that of reification, that is, the thingification of social relations. We can think about this in relation to depression, as we discussed in part two, for example, of how diagnostic categories of mental illness come to be seen as real or in relation to Silicon Valley ideology, such that spirituality or wellness or care can be siphoned off into manageable chunks that make you more productive. Things that seem completely alien to questions of production or distribution or consumption suddenly become parts of the market. Tyrus here on algorithms. When I was thinking about the question of, of uh, the, the critical resources that the notion of reification gave, I started to think about a very California problem, which is the, the role that algorithms are playing in structuring our, our lives. And there's been a kind of critique of algorithms that say embedded in the very structure, the, the kind of ontology that um, algorithms have where some beings are recognized and some aren't, systematic bias, various kinds of social effects uh, follow from that. I don't think that you get I mean, yes, you can have a refined informatics and you can have a refined um, computer science that is uh, attuned to some of those kinds of questions, but I don't think that you have a systematic framework for thinking about that kind of problem without the resources of the humanities, including the idea um, that this is a part of a long tradition and a long chain of transformations of processes of reification that, that, Lukács, uh, that Lukács developed. So that's the critique side. And this is a long-winded uh, kind of answer about the question of the, the humanities. But I think there's also um, what I want to call the sort of exemplary side. There's the critique and then there's what I, you know, what I would call the exemplary. And what I mean by the exemplary is 
the humanities help to stage certain kinds of forums, situations that are partially intellectual, but they're also partially experiential, where a different kind of relationship to truth and to the pursuit of truth can take place. And I think the humanities are particularly good at thinking about how to structure those, how to form those. Um, obviously, the, the arts and the experience of the arts are one example, but I actually think in the university, um, yes, the university can be a, a site of critique. So the university is, you know, is an important site for, for criticism because we are kind of the, we're the repository of a whole tradition of critical thinking mm -hmm. of various sorts. But we're also a space where um, different kinds of conversations and different kinds of interactions can, can take place. Um, you know, there is out of the Frankfurt School uh, tradition, the work, of, um, the work of Habermas, who talks about non-distorted communication, he's coming out of the 60s uh, student movement, and he had various sorts of ways in which he unpersuasively tried to, you know, root this in some kind of, you know, almost transcendental nature of human language and, and so forth. But just in a pragmatic sense, the notion of a space where conversation and debate can take place with at least at least mitigated limited distortion from hierarchy and power is a it's a good notion mm -hmm. uh, whether it's transcendentally grounded or whether it's just a kind of pragmatically good thing to do and i think the university can be a space of that and i think the humanities really are um, because of the nature of our engagement with meaning um, you know we're a key site where those sorts of exemplary conversations can take place. Mm. Okay, but I mean, I guess there's a practical problem, I mean, which is humanities departments, faculties getting budgets cut, for example, whether that's in public or private institutions, and often the defense of the humanities when it's made to, whether it's uh, administrators or to politicians, is that, well, no, but look, the humanities can be useful and, you know, whatever instrumental notion mm. that is put forward that it'll actually lead to greater productivity or whatever the ways yeah. that, it, they, that those arguments are couched, which tend to be self-undermining. They undermine the base, exactly what you've just been speaking about. So I guess, how do you negotiate that difficulty of, in very practical terms, needing to defend the humanities, that you need to defend budgets, for example, and, um, you know, without, without, being, without undercutting the very basis on which you make those arguments? So, you know, I, I think it's that these arguments have to be made on a number of fronts, and I don't think that the employment front is one that I would want to kind of completely dismiss. Um, I think there were a lot of myths about the humanities that were put forward, particularly in the, um, in the financial crisis, in which, you know, there was, a, there was a, a, almost a prescriptive sense of uh, the humanities sh should go down and therefore let's find the arguments to, to make mm -hmm. them go down. I had the experience of um, having a conversation with the director of a computer gaming program during this time and he was saying the gaming industry won't hire our, our students out of our, our gaming program but somebody with three or four years of industry experience can be, uh, you know, can have a bidding war for them. Well nobody was saying engineering is in crisis because, you know, undergraduates can't be hired in the midst of the financial crisis. But that was the argument about the humanities. And that situation, I think, is one where it is important to talk about the employment data and 
to talk about the kind of uh, career paths. But there are deeper arguments for the humanities that also involve the plurality of values that we help to address. And financial value is really probably the weakest of those. Mm -hmm. um, and also it's the one that is least um, harmonizable with some of the important kind of critical thrust of mm -hmm. the humanities. And I think that we have to really continue to own that, continue to articulate what's the value of that, um, while not neglecting, you know, some of these other dimensions for, at, at a minimum, pragmatic reasons. You know, if we get our budgets cut and we can't do what we do, then all of that goes out the window. And, uh, and you know, we have to actually assure our base in the institution. That's another thing that I'll, I'll also say that I think that um, we're becoming increasingly uh, aware of the ambivalent role of institutions, but also the fragility of institutions. Mm. And as there's been more and more attack on, insti on institutions, on institutional norms, on law, um, we also recognize that, uh, that that shouldn't be taken for granted. And I, you know, I had, uh, it's not just really in the Trump era, it's also in a period where, you know, we could say in a positive sense there was protest in the university. I think back to 2009 when there were kind of a lot of occupations that were, that were going on. But there was a kind of talk um, among some elements of the protest that was about, you know, the university is no different from a prison and let's tear it down and so forth. And I was really disturbed by the resonance between you know, a kind of external, largely, you know, right wing or kind of neoliberal, let's, you know, strip down the university, let's unbundle it. And, you know, what was also being generated from, uh, from the protest mm -hmm. where the, the question of the value of the institution and, you know, what, what actually would be worth preserving and even, you know, creating alliances with, you know, was not really on the table at that point. Yeah, I wanted to ask you then, since we're in this context then, if what you think about the arguments that, you know, can be, that are argued from the conservative end of things that I would take up from the left end of things that says that because <coughs> humanities were niched on totality and universalism in favor of difference and pluralism, we no longer have meaningful things to say to people because we're all about differences and identities mm -hmm. and this dissolution and fragmentation of a kind of total picture of the of um, knowledge or universal identifications or commonalities, like the grounds of both solidarity and Hegelianism, um, because we reneged on that in order to, in the post-68 era, um, is there some kind of rot from within that we need to look at from your point of view? Um, I don't think that the universalisms came apart because of some subjective failing of the left. I think that that actually is a set of um, objective social forces and um, and tendencies that really probably needed to come apart. Mm -hmm. And the task is not so much to to uh, you know retrench on a kind of uh, um, broken universalism, but to actually rethink the question of how solidarities across differences could be created. Um, I'll give you one example. Where, uh, I'll give you one example where I actually think that 
I found it a provocative example, and it actually helped me to think through what was happening in some of Lukács' work, and it's around the question of populism. Um, I, you know, spoke about popular about people's democracy or pop, popular democracy, and the constitution of a kind of um, notion of the people as a space where solidarity across uh, differences. Uh, could be constituted. In Lukács' case, it especially had to do with rural and urban populations, but it was really looking at the way in which uh, the identification of a people with plural components could be, could be the, the umbrella under which various kinds of democratic, plebeian, anti-fascist elements could be politically and culturally organized. And um, you know, the question of populism is definitely back on the, the table, and I don't want to be, you know, uncritical or uncritically celebratory of those, but that seemed to me a positive example of the ways in which, without returning to the kind of, you know, Hegelian universalism of, you know, the imputed class, yeah. the imputed uh, universal class of the proletariat that Lukács, you know, was aiming for in history and class consciousness, that nevertheless a sort of larger than merely local parochial, um, you know, fragmented separatist, uh, uh, particularist identity could be, you know, could be articulated in ways that could contribute to a collective political project. I, I guess I was thinking more of the universalism of um, the commodity, the universalism of the experience of the commodity, or even the universe, the universal fungibility of the notion of reification, which seems to be able to be applied, I think, in a very um, critical and totalizing way, in a positive totalizing mm -hmm. way. Now we turn to politics proper. The notion of populism, especially of left populism, as we've discussed on Alpha Bunga Bunga a number of times, is based on a coalition of different identities, rather than the figure of the universal worker. How does this all relate to class consciousness today? I think that the, um, that the emergence of new social movements and the, uh, the emergence of you know, the identification of new social agents in you know, revolutionary left movements was in part confronting the the inability the the what do I want to say I um, that the notion of the worker wasn't actually providing that kind of universal identity that was posited by by Marxist theory. Now it doesn't mean that um, that labor or um, you know, work or various forms of association with the with the work world don't provide um, important identity positions and and motivations for political action. So it's not a question of aligning workers, but I think that the problem was that in various ways already in the 1960s and and onward, um, the question of how Finding the status of the worker as an identity really was, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I, 
I accept that there were serious uh, questions that were that were raised about that, and serious questions not just on a theoretical level, but questions that were really raised about to what degree does that actually provide a kind of universal point of identification mm -hmm. for the various agents that might be involved in a political, a common political process. Well, it's tricky because that Leninist move from trade union consciousness to political consciousness, not only, well, to the extent that it happened, it certainly isn't happening now. And in fact, we've retreated even from the trade union consciousness, right? That there, there's very little bit of evidence of that basic sort of workerist consciousness. And so we're stuck in a situation where we're having to make a leap almost to to political consciousness without that trade union consciousness. So it puts us in a, in a difficult situation. Um, Although, you know, there are new forms of activism that are, you know, coming about in relation to new forms of work. So, you know, I can't say yet because I haven't even, even heard, you know, any kind of post reporting about the Uber Lyft um, strike. But that's a situation where gig workers who are by design atomized algorithm, you know, uh, managed and so forth, are seeing across national boundaries um, ways in which the identification as workers and not independent contractors, you know, is providing them a means of mm -hmm. labor contestation. Mm -hmm. So that's a really interesting phenomenon, but it's not, um, you know, it's, it, it's not the Russian Social Democratic Party of, mm -hmm. you know, 1900. Right. <laughs> Or even, no, or even no. the British, you know, or even the British trade union, yeah. um, you know, shop store movement yeah. of the sixties and seventies. I, I want to offer like a counter version of the history to the history of the new social movements and the demise of the worker as the universal um, inflection point of identification. What about the idea that? workers were too power the working class was gaining too much power in the United States and that we had reached a point of stagnation with regard to profits by capital. So capital itself colluded with new social movements in this um, um, promotion of new identities to undermine working class power in, in the post-60s period. So that the worker no longer appears as a vanguard class, but both to the new left and to capital itself. And Jefferson Cowie's wrote in a really great book on this called Staying Alive, The Last Days of the American Working Class, where it's not, so maybe the idea is not that um, the worker in the strict Lukacian sense is the universal point of identification, but at least that class struggle is the sort of universal experience of um, history making and political struggle. And that was undermined by the emergence of these kinds of new identities, new social movements, and um, capital colluding to um, reduce, to defeat a working class, to, to um, put an end to class struggle by undermining unions, undermining, negoti um, undermining negotiations between bosses and workers, and by um, atomizing and niche marketing to proletariats and lumpen proletariats who are increasingly um, seeing their wages compressed and capital's incursions on its own profit margins increased. What about that version of history? I'm skeptical. Um, I'm, you know, I don't want to say that there's no element of, of that, but I, but I also think, and I, particularly when I think of the movements of the 60s, um, 50s and 60s on, um, the role of race in the United States, um, the questions of, of gender, um, the role of you know, other oppressed ethnicities, 
Um, and then from another side, also the kind of whole account of the changing nature of work, the stratification and professionalization mm -hmm. of, of work, um, it seems too simplistic an account to say this was just a sort of you know, strategy of the bosses to get people to buy into particularist identity so they could you know, break union solidarity. It, or I at least make unions look bad. Because you can't, you couldn't break the union solidarity, but you could say, well, women, of course, they're excluding you. Um, differently, differently gendered people. I, I understand what you're saying. I, I, I think intuitively, I disagree with you, but we can't have this exemplary discussion, despite the fact that we disagree on this level. But it's also, you know, these were demands that were raised from within those within movements by, you know, also by, you know, union militants by people that you know, definitely were not, I mean, it's not to say that there couldn't be unintended consequences, but these were authentic expressions of their experience even within the, the, the labor movement and also, you know, going beyond the labor movement of racism and, uh, you know, various other sorts mm. of, of oppression. And, you know, this is a perennial kind of question that socialist and labor movements have grappled with of how they you know, of how they relate to other forms of, of social oppression, whether these are simply a kind of expression of capitalism. But I think that, I think that trying to be too reducing of those forms of, uh, of oppression and forms of experience that have generated the demands for um, alternative movements, alternative uh, forms of organization is really probably to, to replicate the set of problems that that led to the fragmentation of the of the labor movement rather than some sort of more positive confrontation with those sorts of differences uh, so i don't think i'm being reductive here because i do believe that private foundations managed to fund civil rights activists and create middle class movements in all of these levels i think gloria steinem took over feminism and created bourgeois feminism as the face of feminism eclipsing eclipsing working class feminism i think the same thing happened with the civil rights movement in the ford and Ford's and Rockefeller foundations. I think there are real paths by which activists were rewarded by private foundations who became increasingly neoliberal. And these figures became the um, spokespeople for the movement. Because I think Martin Luther King Jr. was moving towards socialism, but his legacy is increasingly seen as moral and superior. And what happened with feminism had to do with the bourgeoisification of feminism. So. I, so I beg to differ on reduction. I've, I think I have historical um, knowledge on those things. But there's an, an, an interesting point here about the moral, I guess, the moral critique of, of, of capitalism in general, which draws on a, a, a point that Alex wanted to make. A Lukacian point. A Lukacian point. Well, actually, it, I'm going to attempt a synthesis of all of this, and it's going to be really <laughs> awkward to bear with me. <laughs> oh, thank you, because he's my boss. You better sense No, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna like clear my throat. I'm ready for totality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, so, so let's, let's try this, let's try this. So we've touched on post-60s new social movements and the new left. We've touched on the humanities as a, perhaps as a repository of historical memory and historical thinking. And we've touched on Silicon Valley algorithms and things like that. And to try to bring this all together, I mean, so... The Californian ideology, and in some ways maybe it could just be described also as the new spirit of capitalism, this is a term I actually sometimes prefer, but this confluence of hippie, new ageism, and 
hyper-capitalist, late-capitalist perhaps, individualization, uh, all mediated <clears throat> through new forms of technology. And Lukács talks about romantic anti-capitalism as a thread that runs through modernity, as, as the mirror to bourgeois rationality, and that it's always there recurring, challenging the bourgeois society in the name of pre-capitalist values. And I guess we can see the 68ers, in some sense, attempting a form of romantic anti-capitalism. Not all of it, it was in total, but, it, but there were certain strands there, very obviously with New Age, but not only with New Age, but some return to kind of communitarian values, uh, something that challenged the rigid um, corporate-dominated kind of structure of work, uh, the, the company man and all that. Um, we live in a period today of eternal presentism, where we're disconnected from history, from the past, and from any future. So I guess my question is, to the extent that there's a sort of Californian ideology today, and you know whether it's spouted by Mark Zuckerberg or whoever else, it seems that what is missing increasingly even from that um, kind of body of thought, if we can describe it as such, uh, is precisely that romantic element. That's been lost even. So even mm -hmm. in the Californian ideology, the, or the, the two components of the new spirit of capitalism, actually the one, the romantic element, only exists in the most aesthetic or superficial ways. So maybe, I don't know do you, if you agree with that, um, with that characterization of things? I, you know, when you, were, when you were talking about this, I was thinking of the very, the very, very last episode of the show, Mad Men, has Don Draper, mm. you know, kind of working out at some sort of, you know, yoga resort and you see him you know with a look on his face and it's profoundly am, am, ambiguous because it ends without any kind of mm -hmm. comment but you don't know if he's having you know a sort of spiritual awakening like oh you know I know that mm -hmm. I've wasted my life and all this you know frivolous stuff but but the strong implication is like he gets it and he's going to be the genius of marketing you yeah. know for the next mm -hmm. you know for the 1970s where this is, you know, California is the vanguard mm -hmm. of this kind of new consumerism peddling yeah. of, of individuation. Or, um, it, one of the things, you know, that I, I that I have really um, been interested in, both in the Frankfurt School and also in in relation to Lukacs, is um, certain ways in which their theory got repackaged, let's say, mm -hmm. um, by a particularly the 60s art world, but it more generally a kind of, you know, countercultural uh, movement where the idea of a kind of um, authenticity of experience and experimental nature of experience was a way of opposing the reification of a commoditized mm -hmm. uh, technological society. And, you know, I, in lots of ways, I want to celebrate that countercultural and that neo-avant-garde exploration of alternative forms of being, of living, of, you know, experiencing. But I also see it's a profoundly ambiguous uh, kind of thing where you can sort of see, again, mm. you know, the look on their face, is this an awakening or is this, you know, a way of projecting into, you know, the kind of much more cynical art market of, mm -hmm. you know, the... Yeah, it's the recuperated uh, before you've even begun, maybe. Yeah. It's commodified before, yeah. before it even exists. And I think that, um, you know, I guess the thing that I would want to say, and this might be, you know, a more surprising conclusion from all that, is I think that we have to actually push further into that ambiguousness. 
because I think that the core content of ultimately of Lukács's theory, which aesthetically is absolutely conservative, it's you know about great realism mm-hmm. of the nineteenth century. Um, you know, Marcuse is an interesting case because he was the hottest cultural critic in the '60s art world, but his actual art examples are much more Goethe and Beethoven than, you know, and he explicitly rejects kind of the living theater and so forth that were, you know, putatively applying his ideas. Um, But I, you know, I think that the content, and and Adorno, who of course has very explicit um, connections with a certain kind of modernist avant-garde, particularly in in music, but I think that all of them are really in some way circling around the question of what are the forces that um, are involved in individuation? What are the forces that are involved in a kind of subject formation that either can have a resistant and critical relationship to the social context or are assimilated and administered by that, that context? And of course, it's it's hardly an either-or question. It's a, it's a dialectical both-and. We all are administered. We all are in various ways in conformity with mm. the structures of our society. And we all have the capacity to resist and to, to reflect. How do, we, how do we set up a process where we are able to emphasize that individuation in positive ways and also how are we on a mass level on a mass level on a mass level but 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 this is also where i don't think that these thinkers really got very far beyond thinking about it on the exemplary level and i did talk about the importance Mm -hmm. of the the exemplary Mm -hmm. Um, they are looking particularly to art and I don't think for just the reasons of the Perry Anderson, you know, they sort of fail in politics and yeah. they look to aesthetics, but I think that they look to aesthetics as a kind of um, ground where you can see the you can see the exemplary processes, and it's hard then to translate that mm-hmm. into well, what does that mean on a mm-hmm. on a mass scale or a collective on scale? Activist scale. I think Adorno said Marce- Marcel Proust was the last individual. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the so the issue today becomes how do we how do you make that how do you massify that how do you spread it make it truly popular? Well, how do you first of all how do you adapt it to a current set of, of circumstances? Because we're not really you know we're not dealing with um, I don't know the rise of radio music which exercised Adorno in the in the thirties and forties. We're dealing with a much different set of, of circumstances. But that problem of a kind of exemplary uh, individualization is still an issue, and I think that there's still theoretical work to do in that tradition um, that develops their their legacy. Uh, but then something that really probably Lukács was the most activistic, but also the most contradictory, and that actually existing socialism and the kinds of goals that he had, you know, he in various ways sometimes withdrew, sometimes accommodated to Stalinism, to Qatarism, um, but he was someone who had the most uh, clear relationship to a collective uh, politics. But I think none of them really give us very clear examples of how do you move from that exemplary domain to the generalization to a larger collective project. And I think that is probably the biggest gap theoretically that, you know, there's a lot of work to, uh, for us to do. That's Thank great. You. I think we maybe finish there. I mean, the gap is a great place. To <laughs> end on. 
Okay, that's it for part four of Kalibunga. We are back in a week talking to the Dutch film director Mena Laura Meyer about her documentary Now Something is Slowly Changing, about coaching and therapy culture today, and how the Californian ideology is now world culture. Also, here's a date for your diaries coming up very soon. On Saturday, 20th of July, we'll be doing our first live chat for subscribers. That's available to the influence peddling tier and upwards. We're going to be having a big debriefing and discussion about all that we've talked about in this series. Catherine Yu will also be joining us for it, so please do join us for that. And then on the 4th of August, our first Bunga reading group will take place, virtually, of course. We're discussing Nancy Fraser's The Old is Dying and the New Cannot Be Born, from progressive neoliberalism to Trump and beyond. It is fortunately an extremely short book, so you definitely have time to read it by then. Please do send us any questions and points you have in advance. Really excited to be doing this and to be able to chat to you all then. That's it for now. Catch you next week. Bye-bye.